We have been talking about what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, and I want to remind uh, you that there is a book out on the table in the lobby, What Lies Ahead, which is a comprehensive overview of the end times. It's essentially taking all of my notes and lectures from 20 years of teaching this at the Bible college and seminary level, and we combined that into a book uh, several years ago. And if you're not here in the room, if you're watching this on video, you can go to the Not By Works website and pick that up. Uh, be sure you use the coupon code WLA, though, because it'll save you five bucks uh, on uh, the purchase. So uh, this is kind of a book that we'll track with our series over the next several months as we talk about uh, what God's Word has to say about the end times. By way of review, this is the third uh, session uh, that we come to today. We started out by looking at why should you study the end times, and we talked about how one, uh, one a third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that has yet to be fulfilled. So the, there were many reasons that we gave you uh, for studying the end times, but first and foremost is that if you don't study the end times, you're leaving out one-sixth of the Bible. And then we went from there into the big picture. We started at the 35,000-foot level and said, you know, uh, when you talk about the end times, you can't just zero in on the book of Revelation, for example, like a lot of people do. You've got to say, what is God doing? What is His plan from Genesis to Revelation so that you can understand it in order? You would never read a, a book and start out with the last chapter and then wonder why it doesn't make sense. And I think that's why a lot of people struggle with some of the Bible's teaching on the end times as they dive right into it and they don't put it in context. They don't understand where it fits in the big picture. Then we spend some time talking about God's kingdom promise. And we trace that promise all the way from Genesis 3.15 all the way through to the New Testament and uh, saw how this promise is a running theme of God's plan of the ages. And then we ask the question, if that promise has been reiterated in millennia after millennia, where is it? What happened? Why don't we see this promised kingdom in all of the glorious detail that the Bible uh, describes it? Uh, we asked, has God changed his mind? Or maybe the promised kingdom was only symbolic. And so that's where we left off. But before we uh, pick up with what I want to cover in uh, today's uh, session, which is the covenant behind the promise, I want to reiterate a couple of more points about this notion that some people have that the kingdom was only symbolic or figurative or allegorical in some way or another. So the question then becomes, when you're studying the Bible, how do you know whether to take a particular passage of Scripture literally or figuratively? You know, for some reason, when people pick up the Bible, they are, have a tendency to read it differently than they do any other book on, on the planet. Now, to be sure, the Bible is different than any other book on the planet, but that's because it's inspired, infallible, it's the actual Word of God. But the language in which God chose to communicate His truth to mankind, the, the self-revelation of mankind using words, in the original uh, text it was Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but language, there are simple rules of language that are universal across all languages. When God, when the, when the quill hit the sheepskin, so to speak, under the inspiration of the Spirit, God communicated His revelation using words. And the manner in which we understand or comprehend those words is universal. It's not like when you read the Bible, you're supposed to sort of, you know, divine the, the, the secret hidden meaning between the lines or look for some secret code word or, or wait for the goosebumps to arrive before you go, aha, now I think I get it, or that God's going to reveal the meaning in a dream. 
The Bible is, is to be understood the way any language is supposed to be understood, using grammar, syntax, context, the same way you would pick up any book. So if you pick up any book off of our uh, resource tables here and you open them up, you don't read a, a sentence or two and then go, hmm, I wonder what that really means. And you don't get out a calculator and start counting up words and look for the Bible code and try to figure out some mysterious, you know, deeper hidden meaning. You, you understand based on the context. Now, of course, if you pick up a book and you turn to page 300 and you start reading randomly in the middle of the page, even though you might understand the noun and the subject and the verb, you might really not understand the context unless you see it in the flow of thought. And the same thing is true for God's Word. Uh, many people are prone to what's called proof texting. They pull a verse out of context, stick it on a poster or a bumper sticker, and then uh, wonder, you know, why they've misinterpreted it. But we don't, we don't search for the hidden mystical meaning. Uh, there is no hidden mystical meaning. The Bible means what it means in its plain, normal sense. And so I wanted to mention that on uh, the Not By Works website, if you go to the premium content section, there's an entire course that I've taught for years there called Bible Study Methods. And it's a 15-week course. Uh, of course, you can do it at your own uh, leisure. All the lectures and handouts are there. But one of the handouts that's included in that course is called Figuring Out the Figurative. And I borrowed that title from a, a professor of mine who many of you may know, uh, Howard Hendricks, who I had hermeneutics with. Hermeneutics is just a big word that means Bible study methods. How do you study the Bible? <clears throat> and he has, in his book, Living by the Book, <clears throat> excuse me, a chapter called uh, Figuring Out the Figurative, where he gives some basic universal rules for determining whether a particular passage is intended to be figurative or literal. And some of those rules, I won't go over all of them, but just to kind of whet your appetite a bit, is number one is we should always use a literal sense unless there's some good contextual clue or reason not to. For example, uh, there are many figures of speech. I have a whole lesson on that. Uh, and we use figures of speech in any language. The Greek and the Hebrew are no different. Um, but it's usually obvious when a figure of speech is being used. For example, the figure of speech, a simile. Who knows what a simile is? They have these in Greek and Hebrew, too. It's a comparison using what? Or, or like. Exactly. It's a comparison using like or as. So if, if you say, uh, I'm as hungry as a horse, you know I'm using a figure of speech, right? There are many other rules. For example, if a literal sense would be contrary to doctrine or contrary to the teaching of Scripture somewhere else, you know a figure of speech must be being employed. Or if, uh, if a literal interpretation would be absurd. Sometimes uh, the writers use a figure of speech called hyperbole. What's hyperbole? Exaggeration. An exaggeration. So when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if your, eye, if, if your right eye offends you, gouge it out. Well, I mean, clearly that's not literal for a number of reasons, even though through church history, some people have taken that literally. Uh, now, that's a, a, a warning to us all that sometimes bad Bible interpretation can be hazardous to your health. Uh, but, but if your right eye offends you, gouge it out. First of all, in the context, he's talking about lust. Well, why would removing one of your two eyes solve the problem of lust? I mean, clearly, if you can still see, you can still... A lust. Moreover, the whole point of the passage is Jesus is talking about that sin begins in the heart. He says, you may claim you've never committed adultery, but if you've lusted, which is a matter of the heart, 
uh, you've sinned. So he's just using hyperbole to say, hey, this is a serious thing. Sins of the heart are serious things, and you should take them and deal with them uh, seriously. So there are many rules for interpreting uh, the Bible, whether it's a figure of speech or not. But when we come to this notion of the kingdom, as I demonstrated last week, and if you haven't watched the, uh, the video last week, I encourage you to go back and watch that, because we traced a number of passages of Scripture starting all the way, you know, 2,000 years before Christ, 1,000 years before Christ, a few hundred years before Christ, during the time of Christ, and the letters written after Christ, and showed you that not one time in any single context was there ever any contextual reason to take the kingdom figuratively. Matter of fact, every context, it was plain from the original context that it was intended to be literal. The disciples wanted to know where they were going to get to sit, who was going to get to reign over who, what they would have authority over. We've got the dimensions of the kingdom, in fact. We've got the boundaries, the dimensions of the temple, rather. We've got the boundaries of the kingdom. Everything about it was literal, with literal measurements and literal distances and literal rivers and mountains. So there's nothing in the context that indicates uh, the, the uh, kingdom was figurative. So we can, I just wanted to kind of tack that on to the end of what we talked about last week. So God clearly has not changed his mind, nor can he uh, change his mind. He is uh, not a liar, and he confirmed it by an oath. And we know that uh, if you take the Bible in its plain, normal sense, there's nothing that would indicate somehow all of this throne, temple, kingdom, things that, that the Bible talks about were somehow just symbolic. Okay, So we want to pick up uh, this week with answering the question then that flows from that, which is, why is it that in the year 2020, uh, some 2,000 years after the time of Christ, so many people reject the notion of a literal kingdom? Well, we could look at a number of historical reasons for that. We could look, for example, uh, during the Middle Ages, how Roman Catholicism kind of was the rule of the day, and everybody uh, under that regime thought that the Catholic Church was the kingdom and the Pope was the king, and nobody was allowed to read their Bible for fear of being killed. Uh, that certainly helped aid and abet this mistaken notion uh, that there's not, not going to be a literal kingdom. Uh, we could look at reasons like uh, just simply people's hope uh, becoming, hope waning. You know, when you expect something for so long and it hasn't happened, you begin to think, well, maybe I missed something. So if you go back to the first century, again, I've already made the case in last week's session that it was a literal kingdom. But let's, uh, let's say you're living at the end of the first century, some 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, your son uh, is now, let's say, 18. And he says to you, Dad, you know, where's this kingdom I keep talking about? Where's the Messiah? How come he's not going to take the throne and rule and throw off the shackles of, of oppression that, that Israel has experienced for century after century? Where is he? And you might say to your son, uh, well, son, look, I, I don't know, but I was there with Christ. I walked and talked with him. I heard him say it, and he promised it. He said, he, those men in white raiment said he's going to come again in the same way that he left, and I promise you it's going to happen. Well, now fast forward another generation. You're dead. Your son's grown up. He's got a son. And his son says, where's this kingdom we've been looking for? And you say, well, I don't know, son. And I, I didn't have the privilege of walking and talking with Jesus. But boy, my daddy, your granddaddy did. And here's what he told me. And we can count on it. And it's coming. And we need to look up and be watchful like Jesus said we should. We should watch for the signs of the times. And, and then you fast forward another generation or two. And first thing you know, you're having conversations like, well, you know, son, 
my great 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 grandfather he's he talked to jesus and he said that he's going to come back and he said his kingdom is going to come but honestly i don't know it's been so long and i don't really know and hope begins to wane and then you have augustine come along in the what fourth century or so and he writes his famous book city of god in which he by that time basically said we must have missed something and he went back and reinterpreted the entire bible as being allegorical and said that we're living in the kingdom now uh, congratulations, I hope you enjoy it, this is the kingdom. And Origen also before him kind of uh, popularized this notion of an allegorical approach to Scripture. And again, they, those are men of God who contributed much to church history. We're not uh, being personally attacking, but that was just sort of the natural vein of things. Well, now, 2,000 years later, and we see being fulfilled before our very eyes, the prophecy of Peter. What did Peter say? Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his kingdom? So here we are. Remember what the last days are. We've talked about that previously. The last days are the church age. That's very clear from passages like Hebrews 1 and uh, many of Paul's uh, teachings. So here we are in the last days, and Peter says at some point, people are going to really start to wonder, where is the promise of of his coming, and they're going to scoff and mock at that. They're going to say, you know, since the fathers, the ones to whom the promise was given, meaning Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, fell asleep, all things continue as they are from the beginning. Peter's going to go on to say, but look, the Lord is not slack concerning this promise that we've been talking about. He's not slack. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So one of the reasons that we know the Lord is tarrying His coming is because He's wanting more and more people to have the opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. We don't know the timetable of God. We know we have a job to do in this uh, uh, time period of the church. We are called to uh, spread the gospel and make disciples. I can't wait for next week, uh, uh, next Sunday, I'm going to begin our discussion and foray into the rapture. We're going to spend several weeks there because that's a really important subject and understanding the distinction in the Scripture between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, but all of us are going to be recipients of this uh, promise. In fact, Peter goes on to say in the same passage, nevertheless, even though people are scoffing and saying, where's the promise of nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for that new heavens and that new earth in which righteousness dwells see there's going to come a day when christ comes back and makes all things new for the first thousand years of his kingdom it's going to be on the old heaven and the old earth and we'll get to that in this series what lies ahead as well way down the future in fact i hope the rapture happens before we get to it that's how that's how imminent i think the rapture is um, but you know we we look for that and and we long for that and as we talked about previously, Paul put it this way, if you are Christ, that is, if by faith, verse 26 here of Galatians 3 says, we're all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. So last week, we talked extensively about the promise. This week, we're going to talk about the covenant behind a promise, the promise. You know, these days, covenants or contracts don't mean much, do they? You know, when you make a contract, uh, you can have all sorts of loopholes or 
out clauses or people will cheat you. Uh, you know, it's very difficult. Any, any uh, sneaky attorney is going to be able to find a way to get out of any type of contract. But as we've established, God is not a liar. God's word can be counted on. And when God makes a contract, you can count on it. So we're going to talk about that covenant. But as we look at this passage, Galatians 3, uh, we need to understand how this promise that was uh, alluded to in Genesis 3.15 with the seed of the woman. Remember we talked about that. An allusion to the virgin birth of Christ because the woman doesn't have a seed. And the New King James capitalizes the seed there because it's a reference to Christ who's going to ultimately destroy the head of the serpent, Satan. Uh, and then that the promise was spelled out in detail in Genesis chapter 12. But Paul comes along and tells us we're all heirs to that promise. What does he mean? Well, in Scripture we see four seeds of Abraham. Obviously there's the natural seed, which refers to all physical descendants of Abraham. In other words, ethnic Jews. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 9 when he says, I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So that's the natural seed. But you've also got, as Paul describes in Romans as well, the natural spiritual seed. That is, people who are ethnic Jews, but they have believed the gospel and become born again. Uh, Paul says, for example, that not all Israel is Israel. And he goes on to say in Galatians, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So you've got the natural seed and then the natural spiritual seed. But then you've got the spiritual seed. What if you're not a Jew? Can you somehow participate in the blessings of Abraham? Absolutely. This refers to believing Gentiles, those who are not Jews but who have also believed the gospel. Again, the passage we looked at a moment ago. If you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But ultimately, the ultimate seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ himself who came to fulfill the law. Paul says, to, now to Abraham and his seed, capital S, were the promises made. And he does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And then Paul reiterates this in Ephesians when he says that at that time you, Gentiles, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And notice this, strangers from the covenants of promise. See, if you're not a believer, if you've never trusted Christ and Him alone for salvation... You're outside the promise. You're not a party to this unconditional covenant uh, that we're going to talk about. You have no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near uh, by the blood of Christ. So we need to look at this unconditional covenant behind the promise. Now, the covenants in Scripture are the absolute key to understanding God's kingdom promise of the ages. God's end times program is really described in detail. It's an outline, if you will, through these covenants. The, the one primary covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and then the iterations of it that followed in the progress of Revelation as over time God began to spell out more and more uh, details of it. In fact, I don't believe you can understand the end times, which is why we started with Genesis and not Revelation in this study, unless you understand the covenant. So we'll start out in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This comprises what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And I introduced this just briefly last week. If you were here, you may remember that. But the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So the first 
aspect of this promise is geographical. It involves a land. And then he goes on to say, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. So he's talking here about his descendants, his seed, that somehow from Abraham, who, by the way, was childless, yet because of God's unconditional promise, many people are going to descend from him, uh, ultimately the ultimate seed as we talked about Jesus Christ, and, uh, and he will be, uh, his descendants will be as the uh, sand of the sea. So by the way, there's another figure of speech that we see in the Old Testament, right? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think, well, how, I can tell exactly how many descendants of Abraham are. All I have to do is count up the sands of the sea. Well, you know, you clearly, the, like or as, it's using a figure of speech, as the sand of the sea. But then in verse 3, we see not only the land and the seed, but we see the fact that through this unconditional promise, all families of the earth will be blessed. So we see this notion of blessing. Now, you've heard me refer to this covenant as an unconditional covenant, so it might be helpful to do a quick survey of the covenants in Scripture. There are five biblical covenants in Scripture. Uh, some uh, covenant theologians and Calvinists will suggest some theological covenants that they contrive not from a particular verse of Scripture, but from a theological presupposition, covenant of grace, covenant of works, but the Bible never delineates those covenants in so many terms. It does delineate these covenants using the typical language of an ancient Near Eastern uh, treaty, uh, and that's how we know these are covenants. Uh, but the first is the one we just introduced, the Abrahamic covenant. But then uh, the Bible, God in Scripture is going to reiterate the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant through a separate unconditional covenant, just to sort of amplify the, the elements of the land. This is sometimes referred to as the Palestinian covenant, uh, and for years that's the way I called it, but over time words changed meaning, and the, the phrase Palestinian became somewhat controversial, and so many theologians just started calling it the land covenant. But sometimes as I travel and speak at prophecy conferences, I'll, I can't win. It doesn't matter what I call it. People will come up to me and say, you should call it the Palestinian covenant. We're not going to capitulate to those Arabs over in Palestine who co-opted the name Palestinian. You just need to stick to your guns. But if I call it Palestinian, I'll have people come up and say, why are you giving the Palestinians credit? Just call it the land covenant. So I, you call it what you want, but it's a geographic element of the covenant, uh, amplifying that aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And then, remember we said there's the seed aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, that's amplified through yet another unconditional covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And then finally the spiritual blessing aspect, how all the families on the earth will experience universal blessing, that's amplified through yet a fourth unconditional covenant. So those second, third, and fourth ones that you see listed there are all amplifications or flow out of the foundational one, the Abrahamic, and I'm going to chart this out for you in just a second. But I wanted you to notice those four biblical covenants. And the fifth one is the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant's a little bit different because the first four of these are all unconditional, whereas the Mosaic Covenant is an if-then. It's a conditional covenant. It's a rule of life, essentially a stewardship to help keep order in the land of Israel. So it's important to understand the difference between a conditional covenant and and an unconditional covenant. Again, a conditional covenant is if you will, and its fulfillment depends on the cooperation of the recipient. If the recipient of the covenant keeps his or her end of the bargain, great. 
The person making the covenant will keep theirs. It's a bilateral agreement. And that's what the Mosaic covenant was, blessing and cursing. But an unconditional covenant is an I will statement. No if is attached. And its, condition, its fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant. And so the Abrahamic covenant, the land and Davidic and new covenant that flow from it, are all unconditional, depending solely upon uh, God to keep them. So now I want to chart this out for you in the remainder of our time and see kind of how this works through history. These same three elements of land, seed, and blessing are reiterated, that, that flow out of the Abrahamic covenant, are reiterated through three subsequent unconditional promises or covenants. So remember what the Abrahamic covenant says, I'm going to give you a land, and later on he's going to give you the boundaries in the land covenant. I'm going to have incredible descendants throughout the earth, and I'm going to bring blessing on the entire earth. So you've got land, seed, and blessing as the foundational components of the Abrahamic covenant. And then, as time goes on, so this was all before the law. You know, Abraham was roughly 2000 B.C., okay, 2000 years before Christ. But as uh, time goes on, we see in the time uh, of uh, the Exodus, Moses is given more details through the, the land covenant. And we see this, first of all, referenced in Genesis 15. Again, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. In Genesis, he's recounting under the inspiration of the Spirit things that happened before he was alive. When you get to Deuteronomy, he's writing you know, while uh, he's alive. But in the land covenant, you begin to see the boundaries of this land. He says, I'm going to give you this land. Here are the boundaries. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenezites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, if you were to map this out based on a map of history at that time, everything you see in pink here, roughly speaking, uh, would be the promise of the promised land, the, pr the promised land that was given and promised to uh, Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant and the subsequent land covenant. As I've shown before, if you want to put modern-day Israel on there, it's roughly right here. So don't make the mistake that many have of thinking that Israel's return to the land in 1948 was the fulfillment of the land promise. They haven't even come close to inhabiting the land. And even though they've had the land... Uh, uh, the right to the land at various times. Joshua tells us this. They've never actually physically inhabited all of the land that was promised them. So, again, either God lied or he meant it symbolically. Well, if he meant it symbolically, why would he give all these boundaries? And there's nothing in that text that indicates he's using a figure of speech. Uh, so this must mean that their inhabitation of the land is yet the future, and indeed it is. We read about that in later prophets like Ezekiel and many others. So they're going to come back. Christ is going to come back. The Messiah is going to come back on the Mount of Olives, and Israel will experience the rebuilding of the incredible millennial temple as described in Ezekiel 40-48, to and Christ the Messiah will take the throne and rule with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice. So that's the land covenant. And then again, we go through time. We come to the time of David and the seed element of the Abrahamic covenant is amplified through the Davidic covenant when God tells David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. 
your throne shall be established forever. Now again, how would David have understood house, kingdom, and throne? He would have understood it the way any ancient Near Eastern king or any king of any age really would have understood it. A king has a house, a temple. A king sits on a throne. A king has a kingdom, and it has boundaries, right? And throughout uh, human history, many world leaders, we talked about this in the Spirit of the Antichrist series, uh, have sought to expand their boundaries and take over the world, right? Um, so in Israel, as it relates to Israel, Israel found itself at various times in bondage to Egypt in the Egyptian Empire, Assyria in the Assyrian Empire, uh, Babylon in the Babylonian Empire, Persia, Greece, Rome, and Daniel the prophet talks a lot about these global empires. Uh, so there's nothing in the biblical narrative or in histo history itself that would indicate somehow God, the creator of the universe's kingdom someday when he defeats Satan and ushers in, and the Bible comes full circle, this perfect kingdom of peace is going to be figurative in your hearts. The whole pre premise of the Bible is on God reclaiming the land that Satan has corrupted through the fall of mankind. So you've got the Davidic covenant. And then finally, uh, flowing out of the Abrahamic covenant again, is this idea of spiritual blessing. And that is amplified through the new covenant, which we see uh, in the exilic period from the prophet Jeremiah. So now we're, you know, we're roughly four or five hundred years before Christ. And Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the uh, house of Judah. So who is the new covenant promised to be with? Israel. Both houses of Israel. Again, all the world will be blessed through Israel. That's the reason Jesus told the woman at the well, uh, salvation is of the Jews. Okay, um, But it's a global kingdom, but it's centered and focused on Israel uh, in that day with the with the Jerusalem, the holy city, and the temple, and so forth. Um, but notice Jeremiah is speaking of a future covenant. So if we go back for a second here, the Abrahamic covenant was made and ratified in Genesis 12 with Abraham. The land covenant was amplified and, and made with Abraham subsequent to that. The Davidic covenant was made with David and ratified. It's in place today. The new covenant, though, is a little bit different because it was promised. And it's speaking of the future tense. Someday in the future, I'm going to make this covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this new covenant uh, was promised several hundred years before Christ through the prophet Jeremiah. When was the new covenant promised? Uh, ratified or actually put in place and said, okay, now the whole covenant program is in place. Anybody know? Let me give you a hint. If you're watching this on video, I'm going to disappear, but I promise I'll be back. Um, any, any, anybody have an idea? Okay. Yeah. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper at our church this morning, so I was showing the folks here the Lord's table that is out in front of me here. Yeah, Jesus said in the upper room the night he was betrayed, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the new covenant was put in place at the cross when, with the shedding of Christ's blood. So by the time of Calvary, the entire covenant program of God is now in place, right? It's ready to go. But does that mean it has been inaugurated? Now, here we are in America in the middle of an election year. We know a thing or two about ratifying votes and inaugurating new 
administrations, right? Well, the entire covenant program of God has been ratified, but it has not been inaugurated yet. It awaits future fulfillment. And it won't be inaugurated until the King of Kings comes back and takes the throne. Because all of the description of the blessings of this covenant are, it could not possibly fit with what we see going on today. In fact, they're polar opposites. The Bible says today the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Satan himself is the prince of the power of the air. Uh, this is a perverse generation uh, that we live in. This is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we wrestle against principalities and powers. Uh, we're not seeing Israel in the land as described to them. We're certainly not seeing the blessings of the new covenant, which tells us that when Christ comes back and the new covenant is inaugurated, everybody will know about the Lord from the least to the greatest, and nobody will need to teach his neighbor. Did you know that's part of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36? Well, how do you reconcile that with Jesus' command to the church, this present age that we're going to talk about starting next week, uh, when he says, go into all the world and teach. Yet, when the new covenant's in place, nobody will need to teach because everybody will know of the Lord. Why will everybody know of the Lord? Because he'll be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem giving the state of the world address every year. Uh, and, and people will know him. And it'll be a time of unprecedented righteousness and justice and peace. Another thing we read about the new covenant when it's inaugurated is everybody, every believer will do what's right. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but... My guess would be we've got some believers in this room that don't always do what's right. So that doesn't, again, in, you know, coincide with the blessings of the new covenant. So the whole covenant promise, starting with Abraham, reiterated through the land, the Davidic and the new covenant, is, has been ratified, but it has not been inaugurated yet. And you'll notice along the bottom there, let me get rid of that circle, you see the Mosaic covenant. I just put that in there to show you that it was put in place just during the time of Israel and the law as a steward, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, we're not under the written law, we're under the law on our hearts. And so, speaking of Christ coming, as we move forward in time, we've got the coming of Christ and the mystery of the church. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on this next week as we introduce the rapture and how it relates to the church and how it was a mystery. Did you know the rapture is called a mystery? And so is the church, okay? What's a mystery? Well, you'll have to come back next week uh, and we'll get into that in more detail. Um, but again, during this present church age, we know the law was our tutor until Christ came. Um, and uh, we know that uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that we are now living in this dispensation or this economy, this stewardship of the grace of God. We've talked about this in our Christmas series that we are in the midst of. Um, but that mystery that he's talking about here is that Gentiles and Jews will be part of the same body. Okay? That's what's unique about the present age. Not, a, not that God is not, uh, has abandoned Israel. Paul's whole point in Romans 9 through 11, especially the olive branch, the olive tree thing in Romans 11, is to say that, yeah, there is a future for national Israel, but right now, today, in the present age, there's no distinction. Jew and Gentile, male and female, one body. We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We have unique privileges that come in this present age, unique commands, unique purpose. We're going to talk about the purpose of Israel and the purpose of the church next week. But we're all partakers of His promise. Notice there in Ephesians 3. So this promise, again, you see again and again through Scripture. But this time during the present church age is called a period of time of blindness to Israel. 
blindness in part. Why does he say blindness in part? Well, because not every Jew was blinded. There were many Jews, and Paul includes himself among them, who believed the gospel. Not every Jew rejected Christ. Uh, the nation of Israel did. The, national, the nation of Israel, the national leaders, crowned him with thorns and crucified him. But many Jews believed that he indeed was the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it was a partial blindness. But at, uh, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the spotlight's going to shift back to Israel. And, and Paul goes on to say in Romans 11 that at that time, all Israel, not just the remnant, not just partial, but the entire nation will believe the gospel and be ushered into their land. That's what Jesus said as well in Matthew 24 and 25, that when Christ, he said, when I come back, I will send my angels to the four corners of the earth to gather together Israel and bring them back into the land. So the, the gathering that's happening now and started happening in on May 15, 1948, when Israel became a nation after World War II, that, that, that might have been setting the stage for what's to come, but that was not the fulfillment of the great end times gathering because the great end times gathering is going to be supernatural literally being brought back by angels, according to Jesus uh, himself. So this is this mystery of the church, the present church age. But someday after the church, Christ is going to come back. And this covenant program that we've been talking about is going to be fulfilled in full in the kingdom age. Paul says all this will be, will be saved or delivered is the idea there. The word saved in scripture 58% of the time means delivered from some rest, you know, some danger or problem into some safety. That doesn't always mean eternal salvation. Um, but he says this will happen. Israel will be delivered when the deliverer comes out of Zion. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Notice the capital D. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them. <clears throat> when is the covenant program going to be fulfilled? He tells us right here. When the deliverer comes back to Zion. <clears throat> when he comes out of Zion. So we're not living in the age of the kingdom today. It will not occur, according to Paul, until the deliverer comes out of Zion. He's quoting there Old Testament prophecies that relate uh, to the second coming. So this entire covenant program that you see over there, starting with the Abrahamic covenant amplified in the land Davidic and new, is essentially a written guarantee of the kingdom someday. A written guarantee of the kingdom when Christ comes back. So <clears throat> uh, it's important to understand that this promise that we traced in the first two weeks of this series uh, from Genesis forward is undergirded by a covenant with Almighty God, the creator of the universe himself. And to flippantly and hastily dismiss out of hand the notion of a future literal kingdom on earth is to, is to really not understand the plain, normal sense of Scripture. And we're going to go into a lot more detail because, again, one-sixth of the Bible relates to the details of this coming kingdom. And we need to know the timing and <clears throat> how the Antichrist and the tribulation and the abomination of desolation and the seal trumpet and bold judgments and the battle of Gog and Magog and the battle of Armageddon and the two witnesses and the rapture and the second coming and the millennium and all of these things, the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage feast, the wedding supper, all of these things fit into that plan. Um, but again, you, you, you make a, I think you make an error, uh, even though it's good and well-intentioned, godly uh, people that believe this. They certainly value the Bible. And by the way, this issue of the, your view on the end times is not an issue of liberal or conservative. It's an issue of hermeneutics. How do you understand Scripture? Many well-intentioned, godly 
uh, scholars and Bible teachers and, and believers hold to a different view of the end times. I just have an honest disagreement with them because of my hermeneutic, my understanding of language and how what the Bible means and how you interpret Scripture. And so, but many who don't, essentially, whether they mean to or not, take one-sixth of the Bible and just toss it aside as if it basically means one, you know, nebulous thing. Christ is coming back, period. So that's why... You know, our, our biblical end times charts, and you've seen mine a lot if you've watched my Spirit of the Antichrist uh, presentation or you were here for that. You know, it has a lot of detail on it because we take the Bible literally. You know, those who don't hold that, their end times chart is just a line with a dot at the end of it, basically. Here we are now. Christ comes back. End of story. There's really not much else to it, right? Um, but I think uh, the thing that I take the most comfort from in understanding the kingdom promise and the covenant behind the kingdom promise is that uh, this world as we now know it is not the world that's to come. And I believe that's why Paul says, if in this life only I have hope, I am of all men most pitiable because there's a better day coming. So we've got time for just a couple of uh, questions here. Uh, and I want to remind you that the book is available out on the table in the lobby. If you don't already have it, you can pick it up uh, just for a donation. There's a box out there that the funds, the church has purchased these at cost from the publisher, and the funds go back to reimburse the church. But if you're watching online, you can purchase it uh, using the coupon code at the Not By Work store. But any questions about uh, anything we've talked about so far or comments or thoughts? I'll put that chart back up for you. Any, anybody have a question or a comment? All right. Well, I know I was talking fast. Do I talk fast? No? Good. Good. I didn't think I did. But, you know, I think on some uh, playback on our podcast, if you listen to the audio, you can actually slow it down or speed it up. So someone said they tried to speed my podcast up because they needed to listen to it in a hurry, and it blew up because it was already so fast. But anyway, all right. Well, thank you guys very much, and we will uh, take a break and come back together here in about 15 minutes for church.